Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Welcome to episode 141 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening show for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host and producer, and I look forward to sharing with you over the next 40 minutes updates to our local garden scenes and recent articles about gardens, plants, and designers, both here in California and around the world. Gardens are in my DNA. I was raised in a family of gardeners, and my grandparents and mother handed down a love of flowers, orchids, and of roses, among many other gifts. I have been an inveterate gardener for years, from that first six-pack of marigolds I bought at Home Depot in suburban Connecticut to laying out rose gardens, planting fruit trees, and rescuing overgrown and underloved gardens, as well as hunting down garden books from classic design texts to glossy coffee table indulgences. I've spent years getting to know California's Mediterranean garden landscapes, plants, and climate, even as I have fallen for English and continental garden design traditions, grown fond of the particularities and peculiarities of succulents, which perform so well in our climate, and learn to respect the quiet power of Japanese gardens. I've been active in local garden societies and visited botanical gardens around the world, believing not only in the benefits of gardening itself, but of being in the garden, and of being charmed by that special alchemy of plants, climate, soil, design, space, and place. Gardens are a place where we can become more alive and more connected with the world we inhabit. And as the good book reminds us, it all began in a garden. Welcome to this week's show. start this week with an article by Louis Sahagun, published on the 27th of February in the Los Angeles Times, A Rare Daisy's Last Stand. It's a fight to the end for the Peritile Ioensis, which grows amid mining claims near Death Valley. Dateline, Lone Pine, California. Botanist Maria Jesus has made a career out of trying to protect wild places where rare plants are making their last stand, and fieldwork can mean bivouacking alone in a pup tent. Take the Inyo rock daisy, which only grows in the crevices of cliff walls in two largely roadless areas of the southern Inyo Mountains near Death Valley National Park. One is Conglomerate Mesa, a 22,500-acre of chunk pinyon pines, rock spires, and tilted beds of limestone. It's also where K2 Gold Corp of Vancouver, Canada is drilling and trenching on public lands in hopes of laying the groundwork for a large-scale open pit mine. The other is near privately owned land in the nearby historic Cerro Gordo Mining District, which was recently sold to investors with plans to develop a ghost town into a tourist attraction. Saving an obscure daisy that occupies less than a cumulative square mile of the Earth's surface means getting to know it. Jesus, 38, a conservationist at the nonprofit California Botanic Garden in Claremont, has spent 103 days over the last four years roaming the Inyo's range's scowling canyons and craggy peaks 
in search of details about its natural history. The first time she laid eyes on Paratile Inyoensis, she was hooked. It was all by itself on a cliff on a scorching summer day, she recalled, luring pollinating wasps into service with the pungent earthy aroma of its brilliant yellow flowers. Right then and there, she added with a proud smile, I vowed to do everything in my power to ensure its survival. Earlier this month, Jesus and Eleni Anderson, a senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity, in conjunction with the California Native Plant Society, submitted petitions to the California Fish and Game Commission and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service seeking to have the Inyo rock daisy listed as a threatened or endangered species. And they hope its listing, if approved, will bring a screeching halt to K2's proposal to use tons of cyanide each day to leach gold from heaps of crushed ore, a technique that has transformed previously unprofitable mines into bonanzas. In the meantime, Jesus has become a hero of sorts among environmentalists, tribal members, and others who want to keep Inyo County's lakes, streams, meadows, sweeping desert plains, volcanic fields, rural towns, and cattle ranches in their current state, free of the clatter and disruptions of heavy industry. K2 was unavailable for comment, but Wendy Schneider, executive director of Friends of the Inyo, summed up Jesus' crusade this way, flower power, good stuff. Let's find some daisies, Jesus said on a recent morning as she, Anderson, Kayla Brown, desert lands organizer at the nonprofit Friends of the Inyo, and a visitor set out on a trail across the arid mesa that is managed by the U.S. Bureau of Land Management and home to mountain lions, desert night lizards, and most of the few dozen known occurrences of Inyo rock daisy. Jesus has an extra awareness that researchers with years of field develop that guides her to steep, wind-punished slopes shared by the wildflowers and some of the several hundred mining claims K2 has acquired since 2019. Finally, the group came to an abrupt stop, and Jesus nodded appreciatively toward a small brown shrub protruding from a crack in a crumbly outcropping about 15 feet high that was dappled with brown moss and orange lichen. There's our daisy, Jesus said, extending her arms as if to embrace the plant, which stood in a drab, seemingly lifeless winter phase that only a botanist could cherish. Although most of the daisy's habitat in conglomerate mesa and Cerro Gordo is designated as part of the National Conservation Lands System, it remains open for commercial extraction under the 1872 mining law. But the petition is igniting deep passions in struggling communities along U.S. Highway 395. The area has a legacy of historic mining, but now relies on tourists from Southern California to make cash registers sing in tackle shops, art galleries, restaurants, and saloons with Old West facades. Among those communities is Lone Pine, about 20 miles west of Conglomerate Mesa, the town of about 2,000 residents. About 100 miles south of the Sierra Nevada ski resort town of Mammoth Lakes has a median household income of about $46,146, compared with $80,440 statewide, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. There, too, K2 Gold, known locally as Mojave Precious Metals, Inc., has opened an office just a few steps away from the Lone Pine Chamber of Commerce. In addition to K2 Gold, federal land managers are weighing at least five controversial gold exploration projects by foreign companies along the nearby eastern Sierra Nevada range. Just outside Mammoth Lakes, for instance, 
Core Mining, a Canadian company, is exploring the feasibility of open pit mining under U.S. Forest Service oversight. Some fear the endeavor could overwhelm the peaceful ambience along Hot Creek, a fly fishing hotspot about 300 miles north of Los Angeles. Whether any of the claims being staked throughout the mineral-rich region blossom into full-blown mines remains to be seen. But the price of gold surged to about $2,000 per ounce in the wake of Russia's military action in Ukraine. Matt Kingsley, an Inyo County supervisor representing a district that includes the southern Inyo Mountains, said he was not surprised that conservationists are throwing everything they can at these gold mining proposals. This is their latest tactic. But the plants in question, he suggested, have obviously thrived and survived, and it may be possible they will be fine with any mine. Jesus is not so sure. And when it comes to the Inyo rock daisy, she knows as much as anyone. The thesis for her master's degree at Claremont Graduate University required roaming the Inyo Mountains along four-wheel drive dirt roads and hiking no-nonsense trails as part of an effort to map the extent of the daisy's home range. While searching for evidence of the plant in the vicinity of Cerro Gordo, she spent a night alone in a pup tent just a stone's throw from a century-old cemetery. I didn't get much sleep that night, she said. Other measures of her dedication to the cause include handing out buttons featuring color photos of the daisy in bloom and producing a virtual tour of the plant's minuscule empire aimed at answering a fundamental question. Why should anyone care about a few daisy plants in a place only visited by a few intrepid hikers each year? It's the kind of question that fueled the earlier explorations of a woman Jesus and Anderson both regard as a personal hero, Mary de Decker, a botanist who amassed a massive archive of information on native plants of the Inyo Mountains and the eastern Sierra Nevada range, and urged residents to fight development proposals that threaten their survival. De Decker died in 2000 at the age of 91. She was crusty and tireless, Anderson recalled, and an inspiration for new generations of naturalists. Jesus could not agree more but regulatory gears move slowly. State and federal wildlife authorities may not take the petition under consideration until August, and K2 has requested permission to grade dirt roads on the Mesa as part of an effort to increase its exploratory drilling activities. These wildflowers may have endured decades of historic mining, Anderson said, but they don't stand a chance against a combination of modern industrial-scale operations and extreme climate shifts. Indeed, distressing signs abound that more frequent droughts and record-breaking heat waves are taking a toll on the region's fragile ecology. Animals desperate for food and moisture, for example, have eaten the bark off the trunks of thousands of Joshua trees in the area. It's added a layer of urgency to Jesus's efforts to gather more daisy facts that could become keys to its long-term survival. Despite the recent hike, as gusts of wind and snow pummeled the mesa, Jesus dropped to her knees for a closer look at one for a closer look at a lone daisy clinging to existence on an outcrop surrounded by mining claims. Peering through a powerful hand lens, she smiled and said, Hang in there. An article by Luis Sahagun, published on the twenty seventh of February in the Los Angeles Times, a rare daisy's last stand.
And for another perspective on what some used to call the commons, an article by Margaret Renkel, contributing opinion writer who covers, who covers flora, fauna, politics, and culture in the American South for the New York Times, published on January 24th, How Do You Mourn a 250-Year-Old Giant? Dateline, Nashville. Down the street, right after Christmas, a developer knocked down a perfectly good house, along with nearly every tree on the deeply treed lot. It's an old story here, and the pure waste of it is always appalling. But this yard also happens to be on the neighborhood's bobcat route between a school campus lush with trees and a wet creek bordered by dense greenery. And that's what brought me to tears. Preserving those trees would have meant protecting an unassuming but critical wildlife corridor in an area where development is putting increasing pressure on already stressed wildlife populations. So I was primed to be incensed when I read about the Ohio siblings who cut down a 250-year-old black walnut tree in a suburb of Cleveland. Todd Jones and his sister, Laurel Hoffman, believed that the tree stood on family land and the family's finances were in dire trouble, so they sold the massive black walnut to a logging company for $2,000. But according to deeds and survey images, the irreplaceable tree actually stood seven and a half feet outside their property line, in an area owned by Cleveland Metro Parks, a system of local nature preserves. Now the Cuyahoga County prosecutor has charged Mr. Jones and Ms. Hoffman with grand theft and falsification felony crimes. If convicted, they face up to 18 months in prison. The Cleveland story is remarkable because of the size and age of the tree involved, and also because it was felled on public land, which makes prosecution an option. What was not remarkable is the attitude Todd Jones and Laurel Hoffman brought to bear on the question of the black walnut tree itself. I have no idea where this is coming from, Ms. Hoffman told the plane dealer. It's ours. I just don't understand any of this. The tree belongs to us. The tree is ours. I've heard of people cutting down massive trees, trees planted decades before the homeowner was even born, because they were dropping leaves into the family's swimming pool, or because they were impeding the homeowner's desire to install plastic turf, because their kids wanted a trampoline. One woman I know told me we should cut down the 70-year-old maples in our own yard. They're so thick it feels like the house can't breathe, she said. This was an educated person, a successful professional. Surely she knew that houses can't breathe, and that trees can. Still, I have nothing but compassion for the Ohio siblings who cut down a massive tree to pay down their stepmother's back taxes. This is how collisions between the human need to survive and a tree's need to survive tend to be resolved. Human beings become desperate, and trees carry no weapons. That's why one of the most effective methods of reducing deforestation in poorer countries is remarkably simple. It's paying landowners not to cut down their trees. Human desperation takes many forms, and it's not just the poor who can feel it. Homeowners with the very best of intentions can become alarmed about the dangers that trees may pose as storms grow more frequent and more violent. No one wants to be spared by a tornado only to end up with a tree through the roof anyway. The worried homeowner inevitably consults a tree company for advice, never mind that people who make their living cutting down trees might not be the very best resources to consult about the safety of a tree. 
Public policy, I'm thankful to say, is changing in favor of trees, at least in places where elected officials acknowledge climate change. Forests are well-known harbors of biodiversity and well-known carbon sinks, absorbing and sequestering greenhouse gases. In cities, trees cool hot streets, absorb pollution, improve air quality, limit storm water runoff, prevent erosion, enhance the physical and mental health of human beings, and provide desperately needed habitat for wildlife. Trees are a public good. Protecting them in public areas is a no-brainer for municipal leaders. But how to protect trees on private land is a far greater challenge, and we have been far slower to address it. A great many homeowners share Laurel Hoffman's view that they are entirely within their rights to cut down a tree on their own land. Occasionally, there's a brief hue and cry on social media, much like the one that followed a Lexington, Kentucky homeowner's decision to cut down a rare riparian oak, planted by the Kentucky statesman Henry Clay sometime before 1850. But in too many places, it's generally understood that when you own a piece of property, you also own every tree on the place. Sustainability advocates have long recognized the importance of trees on private land and employ various strategies for preserving them. Many cities have ordinances to protect trees of a certain size or belonging to certain species, even on private land. In those places, a permit might be required to cut down a living tree, and replacement trees might need to be planted, with penalties levied for violating those terms. But such progressive laws often raise the ire of development besotted politicians. In a red state such as Tennessee, laws made by blue cities can be easily overruled for the benefit of donors who fund state lawmakers' campaigns. To truly protect trees, we need to make a profound paradigm shift that transcends politics. We need to stop thinking of trees as objects that belong to us and come to understand them as long-lived as long-lived ecosystems temporarily under our protection. We have borrowed them from the past, and we owe them to the future. It's dumbfounding to consider how long native trees can live if they manage to avoid an encounter with a chainsaw or an alien microbe. They, there are living witness trees, as they are called, that stood watch over every important event in post-colonial American history. The doomed black walnut was a sapling in the Ohio woods when Washington was crossing the Delaware. Last month, a white pine fell in upstate New York that had stood since 1675, the year one of the accusers during the Salem witch trials was born. I know this because Susan Orlean just wrote The Pine Tree's Obituary for the New Yorker. Her impulse to eulogize a tree should tell us something about what trees really are. They are living, breathing things. They created the very air we breathe, and they are creating it still. Their green leaves belong not to us, but to all the orders of insects who use them as a nursery. Their broad limbs belong not to us, but to the nesting songbirds and raptors. The damp soil beneath them belongs not to us, but to the snakes and turtles and lizards rooting for food, and to the rabbits looking for a safe place to hide their nests. Their flowers and droops and nuts and berries feed almost feed absolutely everybody. And a tree's shade belongs not to us, but to the furtive bobcat making its shadowy way through our cacophonous world. How do you mourn a 250-year-old giant? Article by Margaret Renkel, published in the New York Times on January 24, 2022.
article published in the Financial Times on the 18th of February, Robin Lane Fox's Gardens column, The Natural Reflections of Charles Darwin's Father. Robert Darwin's Garden Diary brings us closer to the Victorians and to the formative years of a boy who would go on to change the world. Do you keep a gardening diary? It's one of those good intentions which seldom translate into reality. This weekend, the seasonal rush is about to begin, which writing and recording lose out to planting and weeding. During it, I lack the discipline to note each flower or fruit under the relevant dates in its life. Gardening diaries are usually personal records, not intended for a wider public. They are written without much literary style, and if they ever appear in print, it's usually long after their author's death. By then, they have acquired historic interest, whether because their author has become famous or because they contain details which have become valuable for unexpected reasons. Details of climate are are a good example. We have an intriguing new addition to the class, the garden diary kept first by Charles Darwin's father and then by Susan, his sister. It spans nearly 30 years, from 1838 to 1865, and relates to the garden on the edge of Shrewsbury in which Charles Darwin grew up. He also returned to it in the first summers after his sea voyage on the Beagle. He then put down roots in Kent, where his garden at Down House retains a look he would recognize. His father's house, the Mount in Shrewsbury, survives too, but the Darwins' garden there was believed to be lost, until this diary emerged recording its progress. New evidence for Darwin and his family, however slight, is quite a coup. In the 1980s, the diary came to the notice of Susan Campbell while she was beginning to work on walled kitchen gardens, the start of her career as a garden historian. It was being offered for sale at an auction, but just as she sped off to inspect it, its owner withdrew it. She traced him and learned that he had bought the diary from a bookseller to whom it had been brought, unannounced by a little old lady. Eventually, Campbell was able to buy it and begin work on it line by line, She has taken 35 years to transcribe the contents and relate them wherever possible to the Darwin's lives and letters. She has done an excellent job, and even though she has not printed the text word for word, she has deposited it in Cambridge University Library. Her book is rather artily designed, but in it she has distilled the diary's contents month by month and prefaced them with information about the authors and their relations with Charles himself. She concludes with a full list and discussion of every plant, vegetable, and fruit the diary mentions. This section will be important for anyone interested in early Victorian gardening, as some of the varieties named in it are otherwise untraceable, Rose Triomphe de Tir being one. Others are still available, and the general list of annuals seems very familiar. Darwin's father, Robert, trained as a doctor and married Susanna, daughter of the famous potter Wedgwood a master of commercial sales and marketing. Her brother John was a keen gardener, laying out large gardens, including one near Bristol, subsidized by the pottery's profits. Avoiding business, John, too, went on to keep a garden diary, listing the 62 varieties of pear tree and the 60 varieties of peaches that he grew. Robert was valued as a kind doctor, but had dark bouts of melancholy. Campbell suspects he was bipolar, prone to depression. In his autobiography, Charles Darwin recalls how he was sent, aged 10, by his father to count the number of flowers on the garden's peonies. There were tree varieties, Campbell plausibly infers, and he totted up 160 in the year 1819, 
384 in 1820 and 363 in 1821. The diary, Campbell tells us, shows that Darwin's peonies were often grown in pots, forced into flower in the greenhouse, then returned to the flower beds where they refused to flower for another two years. Peonies are the first recorded subjects of careful data gathering by Charles Darwin. His father hoped he would go on to become a doctor. In the Mount's large garden, Charles played, misbehaved, and was remembered as a naughty child. He recalled how he and his elder brother built a little chemistry laboratory in the garden shed. The kitchen garden, he also recalls, was kept locked at night. The diary shows us more of the work of the shed and the impressive range of the kitchen garden in subsequent years. It contained asparagus, gooseberries galore, and much else. Campbell well connects entries in it with plants and inquiries sent by Charles while on his voyage on the Beagle. His father was willing anyway to grow a banana tree and to make full use of a heated greenhouse. He received plants or seeds of two types of potato, which Charles brought from islands off South America, and in 1839 noted with typical precision that a plant of one had cropped 39 and three-quarter pounds. These links between Darwin's voyages and researches and the Mount's Garden Diary are particularly interesting. Here are some of the entries which Campbell turns into a general guide to this very month, February. Snowdrops, crocuses, dogtooth violets, and white camellia would come into flower. They still do. The lawn might have a first mow. Early flowers opened on apricots, a pear, nectarines, mint, angelica, and thyme were planted out. So were rose cuttings. In the greenhouse, salvias, geraniums, hyacinths, primulas, azaleas, and so forth were in flower. However, in 1852, the Severn had one of its highest floods for 16 years, and in 1855, it froze over. There was frost for five weeks beginning in February, and bonfires in the kitchen garden provide respite for the gardeners. I hope those long cold spells are now past history. When Robert died in 1848, his daughter Susan kept the diary going. Campbell says she has felt a kinship with this fellow Susan, gardening just as she was while working on the diary. Reading the month's pattern, which she has extracted from it, I feel the kinship too. The range of plants indoors and out is wider, but the activities are mostly familiar. In June, mowing is constant, and the young dahlias are finely planted out, as are lobelias and geraniums. The mulberry tree is in leaf, a sure sign of summer, as it is indeed a famously late leafer. There is, however, a major absentee. Not a word is said about slugs. Susan Campbell's The Garden Diary of Dr. Darwin is published by Unicorn. This is an article by Robin Lane Fox, published on the 18th of February, The Natural Reflections of Charles Darwin's Father in the Financial Times. And in his column, published one week later on February 25th, Robin Lane Fox focuses on a potted guide to hepaticas. Short on space, take inspiration from our columnist's 65-year love affair with this Japanese favorite. If you are short of space, grow small plants. Balconies, window ledges, and courtyards are gardenable spaces. Be ingenious, be selective, and enjoy the rewards. Big gardens do not have all the advantages as I am daily made aware of this month. Here is why. 
In clay pots beside my front door, I have spring flowers that are even dearer to me than the patches of crocuses and yellow aconites in the lawn. They are hepaticas, and I love them. I am not alone in doing so. In Japan, they are known as breaking snow plants. On the southern coast of Korea, there is an island hepatica whose popular name is baby deer ears because of the markings on its leaves. Recent recruits to gardening may have missed them, but hepaticas are well suited to potted life in urban gardens or unheated greenhouses. They need less attention than orchids, but are just as fascinating to the eye. When grown in pots, they can be observed at eye level and appreciated in detail away from splashes of mud. They need occasional attention. None of it difficult, but attention is what gardening is all about. Hepaticas tend to have six or seven petals in their central sexual parts. Their stamens and pistils are often pale yellow or white. Think of a winsome woodland anemone and you are on the right lines. Hepaticas used to be placed in the genus of anemones, and botanists are proposing to merge them back into it. Hepaticas differ by having three green bracts on the undersides of their petals. As low-growing plants, their flowers appear on stems never more than six inches high. But whenever they do, I marvel that the world contains anything so beautiful. They come in shades of pink, white, and very occasionally yellow. But the most ethereal hepaticas are blues from dark navy to the blue of a pale sky. While hepaticas have been part of my life for nearly 65 years, they have gained a new prominence for gardeners in the past two decades. They are ideal for small spaces. Excellent advice on growing them there is now available. In the spring edition of Pacific Horticulture, pacifichorticulture.org, Japanese hepaticas are discussed in detail. The magazine also gives their Japanese names. In Britain, the primary source of first-class hepaticas is Ashwood Nurseries near Kidderminster, the place to visit this month to see them at their best. Ashwoodnurseries.com for lists and plants. Ashwood's exhibits at the Spring Show in the RHS London Halls used to amaze visitors and win the event's highest medals. They displayed densely flowering hepaticas quite beautifully on slopes under single-flowered bushes of pale prunus blossom. The nursery's mastermind, John Massey, had realized the potential of hepaticas during winter visits to Japan and its local experts. He rightly calls Japan the epicenter of hepatica cultivation. In Tokyo and Niigata, flower shows are devoted to hepaticas and delight their enthusiasts in early spring. In Japan, hepaticas have been cultivated for more than 400 years. Since 1970, even more varieties have been discovered in woodlands in the north of the main island of Honshu, inspiring Japanese gardeners with their unusual combinations of colors and the frequent doubling of their petals. Double-flowered Japanese beauties such as pale pink Buryo, lilac and yellow Unshin, or lilac blue Toho, are some of the extra specials that Ashwood offers whenever it has stock. These Japanese hepaticas must be grown under glass in Britain, but they need no heating. Japanese growers and exhibitors are way ahead of the rest of us. Japan is the epicenter, but hepaticas radiate across the world from America to Kyrgyzstan. The ones best suited to life outdoors in a British garden are two European, Nobilis and Transylvanica. Nobilis has the wider habitat, from Spain to Russia and even, so Massey reports, a few places inside the Arctic Circle. When available, Nobilis pyrenaica is particularly lovely. 
pale blue or white or pale pink with yellow central stamens. The Transylvanian hepaticas from Romania are even better bets as they are more robust. My biggest successes have been Transylvanica Ada Scott, selected by the fine plantswoman Valerie Finnis, and named after her mother-in-law, and a lovely pale blue called Loden Blue, which is back on sale thanks to Ashwood's researches. These two hardy varieties must be planted where they will be in shade from late April onward. They are at home in woodland or semi-shaded banks, usually near tall trees. They like leaf mold in their soil and will grow as freely on alkaline soil as on acid. Ashwood offers many name forms and I recommend them. Most of all, I recommend fine hybrids between these two varieties. Hepatica media buis is an excellent cross from the Netherlands that has plenty of big, pale blue flowers. Even better is media harvington beauty, whose many stems hold flowers of dark or pale blue well clear of the leaves. Nearly 60 years ago, as a schoolboy, I blew seven pounds, six pence on a truly wondrous hybrid, the famous media Bellardii, which had won top prizes in the late 1930s for its beautifully shaped sky blue flowers. It was the star of my early Aprils, but on moving house, I left it undisturbed and feared I would never find it again. Ashwood, however, has built up stocks of it, and thanks to Massey, I am growing this fine variety again in a clay pot, so I can place it in sunshine during winter and early spring and move it into shade from April onwards. This regime keeps its leaves fresh and healthy until they die back and need to be cut away in January. From January to March, I feed it with calcified seaweed, which encourages hepaticas to produce even more flowers. On balconies or in courtyards, it's easy to move potted hepaticas around and give them the sunshade balance they need. For details, I recommend the cultural guide to hepaticas that Ashwood offers in advance of Massey's own book, In Progress. It illustrates the loveliest Japanese varieties, all best grown in a cold greenhouse, and the American hepaticas, which divide into two species. One of them, Americana, will grow in a flower bed, though life in a clay pot suits it better in Britain. Hepaticas grow slowly, but can be divided easily if dug up and split into bits with two or three crowns each. This splitting should be done only in September. They will also grow from seed, but it must be sown as soon as it is ripe. Ashwood is pre-booking orders of seed for delivery in late spring, so they can send it out within 48 hours of being collected. It must be sown at once and left outside in a shaded place. Even then, it takes up to 10 months to germinate. Seedlings need another year, pricked out in 3-liter pot, before being fit to transplant. Hepaticas, therefore, cost good money. In small spaces, a garden's costs are less. Smile, therefore, and pay for the best, because a few go a wonderfully long way. The latest gardens column by Robin Lane Fox, published in the Financial Times on February 25th, a potted guide to hepaticas. In recent weeks, we have shared a number of events that are going on. As we end this week, there's some brief notice. Through May 31st, the first Butterfly Garden Contest for Gardens in Southwest Riverside County is sponsored by the Santa Margarita Group of the San Gorgonio Chapter of the Sierra Club. 
On February 26th, the California Botanic Garden and Grow Native Nursery reopens after a severe winter storm. February 26-27, the Southern California Camellia Council's 62nd Spring Camellia Show at Descanso. March 12th, spring blooms at Descanso Gardens in La Cañada, Flintridge. March 12th-13th, the 19th Clivia Show and Sale presented by the Southern California Chapter of the North American Clivia Society at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. On March 13th, the South Coast Cactus and Succulent Society presents a free in-person talk by succulent expert Woody Minich. On March 18th through the 20th, San Diego Orchid Society annual international spring show and sale at the Scottish Rite Center in San Diego. On the 19th and 29th of March and the 2nd of April, a three-part native bee workshop is at the Theodore Payne Foundation Nursery. On March 20th, the Spring Equinox Herb Hike at Taft Gardens in Ojai. And March 26th, the Spring Celebration at Descanso Gardens in La Cañada, Flintridge. And that wraps up edition 141 of Green and Growing in the Garden the weekly gardening program produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. Please send us your comments at www.lars.org, L-A-R-R-S, or email us at, one word, laradioreading at gmail.com. Give us suggestions of gardens or stories to follow, your thoughts on a favorite story you heard, or what you think of the broadcast itself. Gardens are not just plants, soil, and irrigation. They speak to us of the world around us, even as we try to create order and structure. They connect us to our landscape and to the cycles of nature. They teach us patience, stewardship, and fortitude. They offer possibilities of beauty and of persistence, even sometimes of transcendence. And they open our senses to both the heart and the soul, to being alive, to being connected with other gardeners, other gardens, and other times. Whether in a container or in pots on a balcony in the city, in a defined dedicated garden space, planted around a suburban house, or in space surrounded by trees, landscape, and open sky, gardens are precious indeed, no matter where they are. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host. Thanks for joining us. Till the next time.